congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In God's Word, there is no small list of interesting stories and characters. Just think of the likes of Noah and the flood, Joseph in Egypt, Elijah on Mount Carmel, and Jonah and the big fish. And we could go on and on. But perhaps no one in the Bible quite captures the imagination just like Samson. Superhuman strength, long flowing hair, carrying city gates, battling Philistines with nothing but a jawbone of a donkey, not to mention tearing apart a lion with his bare hands. All makes for exciting stuff. In fact, ask a young boy what his favorite Bible stories are, he might just say, Samson. However, there might be a part of us, too, that thinks perhaps it's a bit too exciting. And this is Israel's judge. But Samson sure doesn't seem fit to be a spiritual leader. He's reckless, he's strong-willed, and at times... He's downright sinful. And yet God used Samson. God used Samson to deliver his people once again. And Samson is also listed in Hebrews 11 as someone who lived by faith. Now, I had a, had a Bible teacher in high school who made an, an interesting comment one class. He suggested to us that Samson is a person in the Bible who is most like Christ. Well, maybe we would immediately scoff at such an idea, and maybe he was simply trying to make us think. And indeed, Samson, in terms of his character, is not very much like our Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, Samson does point us to Christ in many marvelous ways. Samson's life and ministry do match Christ's life and ministry when you compare them at so many points. And to begin to see that, we need to look no further than our text this morning with the announcement of Samson's birth. And that's also why I've summarized the sermon this morning as follows. Through the announcement of Samson's birth, the Lord prepares to reveal His Son to His people. We'll look at two main points. First of all, the announcement of the Savior's birth, and secondly, the revelation of God's Son. Now, Judges 13 begins with that familiar refrain heard throughout this book, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Israelites slid into idolatry again, and so the predictable also happens again, we read, the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, if we are familiar with Judges, we might predict something else to happen right after this. We would probably predict the text to say, Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Philistine oppression. But as we notice from this text, there is no such cry for help. Now, this omission could be because the Philistine oppression was already mentioned in Judges 10 alongside the Ammonite oppression. And in that chapter, we do read that Israel cried to the Lord. 
However, since all the other details from Judges 10 are repeated in Judges 13, it does seem significant that the cry for help is missing. See, much of Israel had become complacent. So many had forgotten the Lord altogether, not even praying to Him for help. But here we see that even if Israel has forgotten the Lord, the Lord will not forget His people. There is silence from Israel, but God, our God, is not silent. God will act to save His people once again. And here it's good to ask, why does God do this? Think of all the apostasy we've read about in the book of Judges. Why doesn't the Lord just wash His hands with this wayward, rebellious people? Well, it's because of who He is. The great I am who I am. He does not change. He acts because of His own faithfulness, which is within Himself. He acts because of His own love, which is completely from Himself. He acts on a pure mercy and grace towards sinners. It's nothing in them. That's why God does this. It's in His own being, His perfect being. As the Lord says in Malachi 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. See, this is, this is what happens when God works for His own glory. Astounding acts of love and grace. We see this also in the timing of the events in our text. We read that Philistine oppression lasted 40 years and Towards the end of the Samson narrative, we see that Samson judges Israel 20 years. And Samson, of course, is probably around 20 years old or so when he began to judge. And that means this announcement of Samson's birth happened right near the beginning of the Philistine oppression. It seems that no sooner had the Lord disciplined His people, gave them into the hands of their enemies... He was already getting ready to save them again. And that is the amazing, the astounding grace and mercy of the Lord on display. And beloved, this is our God. Remember Malachi 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. He's still the same today. So never lose hope in the great mercy of God. Never. Never lose hope in God's mercy for you in Christ, no matter how much you are struggling in your faith. Never lose hope in God's mercy for those who do not yet know Christ or who may have walked away from Him. God's mercy is never-ending in Christ. And so the Lord, by His pure grace, came to rescue His people again. And his work of salvation began, as it often does, with people who are powerless in themselves to bring salvation. There was a man from the tribe of Dan whose name was Manoah. 
his wife was barren and had no children, they could not of themselves produce a deliverer. Yet God chose to bring salvation to his people through them. Again, this is what happens when the Lord works for his own glory. Astounding works of power and of salvation. One day the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. His message is short but sweet. Behold, you are barren, not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. It's not only short and sweet, it's also a matter of fact This is your past. You have not born children. But now this is your future. You will conceive. You will bear a son. That is the character of God's word, God's promises. They are sure. What God says about the future will come to pass. What God promises, he will do. It's like that with all of God's promises in Jesus Christ. They are sure, they are certain, they are dependable, and so we can put our full trust in them. God's Word will never let us down. And what God promises here is no ordinary child. The angel goes on, Therefore be careful, and drink no wine or strong drink. Eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The child will be a Nazarite to God. What does that mean? Well, a Nazarite refers to a person in Israel who has devoted or consecrated to God in a special way. We read about the Nazarite vow in number 6. And any person in Israel, male or female, they could make a Nazarite vow. And someone who made this vow separated himself or herself to the Lord. And quite often, most likely for a a special task or, or for a time of devotion to God. And we see there, there were special requirements for this vow in, in number six. The Nazarites could not drink wine or any strong drink not even eat anything that came from the vine, no cutting their hair, no touching a dead body. That would make them unclean. They could not make themselves unclean because they were holy to the Lord. Why these particular requirements? Well, these requirements showed a complete dedication to God during the vow. And they showed the Nazarite was to be holy. And through these requirements, the Nazarite showed single-minded devotion to his or her task to the Lord. Now, three things stand out regarding Samson and uh, the Nazarites. First of all, Samson would not be a Nazarite by making a vow. In fact, it wasn't Samson's choice at all. It was simply placed on him by God. The second thing is this, nearly everyone who took a Nazarite vow did so only for a limited time. Samson would be a Nazarite from conception to death. And finally, Samson, during his life, he violated 
nearly all of the Nazarite lost. I don't want to give away the rest of the Samson story, but Samson wasn't a very good Nazarite. And seeing all these things already, we can start to compare Samson to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's true that Jesus was not a Nazarite as Samson was, but he was still separated by God to deliver God's people. And like Samson, Jesus Christ did not choose this task for himself. It was given to him by his Father. He was appointed Savior from before even the beginning of the world. And like Samson, Jesus Christ would have this task from his conception to his death. In fact, as we read this story, we can see the events surrounding uh, Samson and Jesus Christ, their conception and birth are much the same. Both of their births are announced by an angel to the mother of the baby. And why did God choose to raise up Samson in this way? With all the other judges, it seems God called them when they were fully grown. He could have done the same thing with Samson too. But here he sends an angel to a woman, tells her that she will give birth to a Savior child who will begin to save his people. And God does this so that we would recognize the ultimate Savior when he comes. Now, we can recognize that Samson is not the ultimate Savior of God's people. He simply cannot be. But the events surrounding Samson's birth match so well with Jesus' birth so that when Jesus is born, we would say to ourselves, hey, we've seen the Lord do this before. He did something special with Samson and his birth to mark the Savior of God's people. And God must be doing something special through Jesus just like He had done in Samson. Right? The Lord did these things throughout the Old Testament, not only here in our text, so that we would know the ultimate Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. So that when He came, we would recognize Him to be the Savior, so that when He came and did His work, we would put our trust in Him for our eternal salvation. Jesus Christ is the ultimate Savior of His people. See, like Samson, the Lord Jesus was separated for this special task right from conception onward. He carried it through his whole life, as we confess in Lord's Day 15, during all the time that he lived on earth, including the very beginning, especially at the end, Christ bore in his body and soul the wrath of God against our sin, from beginning to end. Well, Samson did not fulfill his Nazarite calling very well. But Christ fulfilled his perfectly. The cross lay ahead throughout his life. Every step brought him closer, but he kept going all the way to death. And he did this so that you and that me might be forgiven our sins, so that we would have eternal life, that we would be reconciled to our God and saved from all of our enemies. And the Holy Spirit 
who's given to us, also now works that same faithfulness and love in our hearts and in our lives. I think of the covenant children also in our congregation. You know, in a similar way to Samson, God has placed a calling on you even before you were born. See, 1 Corinthians 7 says that the children born to believers are holy. God has separated you from the world for himself to be his special people. He's shown that also through the sign of baptism. And God calls you now to also live for him. To see that God has separated you in a special way and that you are there to serve the Lord. Listen to that call. And Samson ignored and disregarded his calling. It did not go well for him. It will not go well for you if you ignore God's call and claim on your life as well. But if you, if you listen, if you see and believe his promises to you, if he lives in the way he calls you to live, it will indeed go well for you. Respond to God's call in faith and obedience brings us to our second point. Now, we might think that after this announcement, we would be close to the end of this chapter. We might think that uh, we come right to the birth of Samson, but we don't. The second half of Judges 13 is, is actually the climax of this chapter. See, the identity of the angel of the Lord now takes center stage rather than Samson. Now, the angel of the Lord, or the messenger of the Lord, as we could also translate it, he's first introduced in verse 3. And the narrator there identifies him for us as the angel of the Lord, so that we know who this is. However, it's clear that Manoah and his wife remain oblivious to his identity for quite some time. The woman first told her husband, a man of God came to me. And yes, she suspects he's more than just a man. She says his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. Yet she still doesn't name him as the angel of the Lord. And for several verses, Manoah and his wife keep referring to him as the man of God, or even just the man. Then after the angel of the Lord declines the offer of food from Manoah, He says, Manoah can prepare a burnt offering to Yahweh. And then the text adds, For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. See, that's the big question in Judges 13. It's who is this person? Who is this angel or messenger of the Lord? So much of the text is building to this. It's driving towards this question. And you may know because of what we will see yet in this text and because of what is described in other texts involving the angel of the Lord, uh, many well-known theologians have concluded that the angel of the Lord is an, is an appearance of the Son of God in human form. So, the second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Now, there are others who caution against this conclusion. However, There are good reasons to believe that the angel of the Lord is, in fact, an appearance of the Son of God. 
I believe this text is bringing us to that conclusion. There's a number of reasons for that. First of all, the focus of this passage comes to Him, on Him. The text is written in such a way as to build towards revealing the identity of this person. I don't think there's anywhere in the Bible where such emphasis is given to just a regular angel. Furthermore, in this chapter, the divine name Yahweh, or Lord, in all caps, is written seven times all on its own, the number of fullness. Well, the number of times the term angel of Yahweh is written is ten times, another significant number in the Old Testament, another way to draw attention to this figure. Yes, it could be a coincidence. We need to be careful with those things, but these things are rarely a coincidence in the Old Testament. But more importantly, there is what comes next. In verse 17, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. The angel of the Lord responded, Why do you ask my name? Seeing as it is wonderful. The names of other angels in the Bible are freely given. Think of Gabriel, but here things are different. My name is Wonderful. And the term wonderful in the Bible is so often used to refer to the things of God. It, it has a sense of being incomprehensible, beyond capacity to know. Think of Psalm 139. Before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. There's Job's words in Job 42. Job had been complaining to God throughout the book. The Lord finally appeared to Job, questioned him, and Job responded to God. I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And this connection is strengthened further in Judges 13. Right after the angel says his name is wonderful, the next verse says that Manoah offered the sacrifice to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. All throughout the Bible, God is described as a God of wonders, a God who works miracles and wonders. In fact, pretty much every song in our liturgy this morning refers to God's wonders. That wording is used to describe this angel's name. And then consider what we read from Isaiah 9. In Isaiah 9, the Lord gives a promise, the birth of a royal child. The promised child is none other than the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that. But notice what it says about this child in verse 6. His name shall be called Wonderful. There it is again. And what makes this reference in Isaiah 9, verse 6, even more significant is that Isaiah 9 already contained two references to the book of Judges. Verse 1 speaks of bringing into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. This first happened in the time of Deborah and Barak. Verse 3 and 4 speaks of the oppression of Midian, the time of Gideon. And then in verse 6, Judges 13 seems to come in view birth of a Savior. His name is wonderful. Finally, 
When Manoah offers up the sacrifice on the rock, the messenger of the Lord stepped up into the flame of the sacrifice and ascended into the flame with the flames. And then Manoah, Manoah knew that this was the angel of the Lord. What did he exclaim? We shall surely die, for we have seen God. So, beloved, I, I believe all these things together are pointing us to see the Son of God in the angel of the Lord. But even if we still hesitate to make that conclusion, it's important to still see this. And as we read the New Testament, we see the true identity of Jesus Christ slowly revealed in much the same way as for the angel of the Lord in Judges 13. Just think of the New Testament Gospels. In Jesus' birth, we are told Jesus' identity. We know who He is. Many people around Him do not. They think He's an ordinary man. But slowly and surely, through His words, through His wondrous miracles, Jesus shows Himself to be true God, the Son of God. And what's the climax, for example, of the book of Mark? Climax... It's most likely found in Mark 15, verse 39. Jesus had just died on the cross, and then we read, When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Suddenly his eyes were opened, like Manoah's. Suddenly he could see that Jesus was not just a mere man Hanging there from a cross, this was the Son of God. He saw what so many people did not see before. Or we could take the book of John. What's the climax of the book of John? Well, John's gospel slowly unfolds Jesus' true identity through his signs and wonders and his words. And again, many people don't recognize him for who he is. Then the climax comes in John 20. Christ appeared to Thomas, who first doubted his resurrection. But then the Lord appears to Thomas, and Thomas confessed in John 20, 28, My Lord and my God. Jesus' identity understood, revealed, fully and completely And we have these climaxes in the Bible, in the gospel, so that we would know that Jesus is the Son of God. And God the Father has revealed His Son in this way so that we would see Him, so that we would know Him, that we would put our trust in Him for salvation, and that we would worship Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth, he lived among us, and he died for us. Oh, I was talking with someone the other, the other day, this past week, he said, one of the things I love teaching most about is perhaps the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God becoming man. Isn't it wonderful, a wondrous work of God for our salvation? The Son of God coming to this earth, bearing our sins, taking our sorrows and our suffering upon Himself, dying in our place, 
Truly, Jesus Christ is the God who works wonders, beloved. Trust in Him. Worship Him. Love Him. See your wondrous God on display in Him. Oh, it's beautiful that the Son of God came to earth in this way, clothed with our human nature. No, Manoah here in his text, he was frightened, terrified. He thought he would die for having seen the angel of the Lord. He said, we have seen God. But his wife seems to have a cool head on her shoulders, wisely responded, if the Lord meant to kill us, he would not have accepted this offering from us or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. Well, that's good logic. The Lord sent his angel to announce salvation through the birth of Samson, not to kill Manoah and his wife, not to condemn them. And the good news is the same logic applies to the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. As John 3 famously says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And yes, John 3 then says, whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already, for having not believed in the name of the Son of God. That's the warning. But there's also this sure promise. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Let's now respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing hymn 19 that stands as 1, 3, and 4. <clears throat>